This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? Those damn trolls. <laughs> BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional therapy done securely online. There is a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your therapist. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change therapists if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline therapy, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read their testimonials that are posted daily. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. That's better, H-E-L-P. And join the over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional therapists in all 50 states. Special offer for true crime listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com. Betterhelp.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Please check out the link in our description box. Hello, everybody. So today we have got another ex-police interview. If you look on the ex-police interviews, they're all doing really well. People are endlessly fascinated by the per- personal stories of been in, who people have been in the police. And from the other interviews we've done, it's all been really harrowing stuff from the training quick exposure to corpses in various situations, undercover cops that we've interviewed, some of those have ended up with PTSD because of the intensity of the situation. And, you know, we've, we've had Neil Woods on, we've had several cops who are members of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, who are doing really well, you know, activists against uh, the present state of the drug war. And today we're going to go down a bit of a different road, though, with Ian... Because Ian has a company called Mindsmith. All of his links are in the description box below this video if you want to reach out to him. And it's going to become, after we get through his personal story, we're going to be talking more about how he helps people, what he does today. He was at CrimeCom recently and his counselling and his coaching. And you may be able to pick up some techniques today that will help you mentally as well, because we're all a bit crazy, aren't we, during this pandemic? (laughs) And if you're not familiar with Jen, Jen is my new co-host. She's done got to be about seven or eight 
You podcasts. said four earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Seven or eight podcasts um, that should be published by the time this goes out. And she runs an organic cotton clothing company. I do indeed. Boom and Jen. And the links for Jen's stuff are down there in the description box below this video as well. So, huge thank you then for coming on, Ian. And we're going to just go right back then to find out why did you want to join the police? That's <laughs> a good question. What was, what was you like as a young that's person a, that influenced really good question. that decision? So, you can probably tell I'm originally from Birmingham, although I try and hide it now, but uh, but I am. And uh, I I went to university from there. I was a goody-goody as a kid, didn't get in a lot of bother. But it was the time when things were... You know, there's a lot of riot stuff going on, 1985, that time. And uh, I, I'd, I'd gone from this sort of cotton wool upbringing to, to university, grew, grew up a little bit. And then I was thinking about, well, what do you want to do? And um, a lot of the, I remember a lot of the forms at the time, they were always saying, well, what ethnicity are you? This, that, the other. And I was thinking, why are they so interested in my ethnicity? Anyway, I went on three different courses uh, familiarization courses to find what the police is like and I was also mad on football at the time and uh, somebody said you come to my force you'll do well young man blah 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 and it was all about playing football then so I joined and my first seven years were all about playing football that was that was it It was like being a pro oh, I wasn't good enough to be pro but it was a bit like that and then you get promoted and life gets a bit more serious you with me so yeah, so, so that's yeah. how it went then and um and I started in, in Staffordshire in a place called Burton-on-Trent, which is a good place to learn. And fairly soon after I started, I did what everybody else did. You have to walk the beat. And when you walk the beat, it's very interesting. What you see on the first day is not the picture you see on the second year. That makes sense. It keeps changing. You see it in more detail. Yeah. As you understand more, your understanding grows, you know. And uh, two and a half years later, I went on to the CID. And uh, and th and that was my career. Then most of the time, I was I was I spent as a detective. Yeah, let's take turns. You just go and I'll go. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's easy to hand signals. <laughs> <laughs> I'm um, right. So, running a team involved in a covert investigation of police corruption in 2012 to 2015. Talk me through. So that was towards the end of my career. I, oh, I well, we don't want to go there. Like, <laughs> don't we? Let's start at the beginning. I don't, I don't <laughs> the training. Let's go with the training. Yes. Yeah. What was the training like? Right. The training was interesting. Um, it was, uh, it might be, this is training as a PC or as a detective. So when you first went in, what were you confronted with? Mm. Right. So I remember I was, uh, I was at headquarters and my first day starting, the Hansworth riots were on, right? And I right. remember I was sitting at the back of a room, the only black guy there, and not everybody, but people were making these comments about what was going on as they watched these riots going on on the TV. And I actually did think at that point, what have I joined, right? I did think that at the time. Oh, dear. But when I went back to my area... It was it was a very different, very supportive structure. I mean, in those days, people used to take the mick a lot. They didn't just take the mick out of men, they, black men. They took the, the mick out of women, anybody who was different, because it was that type of culture. 
but it's that has changed vastly since since yes. during the course of my career. It is yeah. not what it is like now. Now you wouldn't think that because of the way people talk about it, but it's it's not like that now. People are afraid. If they think it, they don't necessarily say it. So what is it like now? Uh, it's a lot more PC. It's more PC than most. I would say most work environments, you know. But again, if you look at at, at the media and and you'll see what they're saying about men in the police now currently. There's this idea that that you you can't trust anybody if somebody stops you on the street, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think that's a massive exaggeration. Most p- police officers aren't like that. What know? was your parents' attitude towards joining the police? My parents are very supportive. They they came over in in the fifties from from Jamaica, and they're very much sort of deferent towards this country. You know, you've got to be twice as good. You've got to work hard. All this sort of stuff. So I actually think that my in my my years, right, and this you know coming on to stress and stuff. Sometimes I thought I was half as good because they're telling me I had to be twice. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because of the, just the way you come to think, and uh, and um, but yeah, they were they were they were really supportive of 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 what I did. Not all the family were like that, however, and you you kind of had to be. This is where you kind of had to be kind of thick skinned. Because a lot of people are saying you're a sellout, you're a this, you're a that, you know. Wow. I don't know how old you are, Sean, but you, if you understand that, <laughs> that mentality was, it was very much, it's not a big deal 52. now. But, but yeah, well, you'll yeah. get it then. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You don't look it either. How oh, old are you? you? I'm 58 now. I'm 58. Now. No way. I was thinking <laughs> <Yeah>. late 40s. <laughs> no, 58. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But like I said, I didn't look like this when I came out, but we'll talk about that later on. <laughs> Good skin care regime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You said that some family members took exception then. Yeah. How did you handle those situations? I you try and reason with them, but they're they're so uh impacted by what they believe that makes sense and they they they're sort of collecting all the negative and there was a lot of negative information around about that time about about the police service and there was a lot of bad practice that went on at, at, at that time can so, you give us an example yeah there was i mean they talk about stop and search and and i think some of that was was because they didn't a lot of people didn't understand you know a lot of guys i joined with they never really met black people before so they would tend to think in the negative about them because they'd never met any before Does that makes sense so yeah. so um and i think that uh, you know stop and search and stuff did reflect that then i think that people generally now are more understanding and understand more about communities i, th- I think you're going to really struggle particularly as a senior officer if you don't have an understanding of communities now but again i, I just don't think that change is reflected and people when they're talking about the service they're talking about what used to happen rather than what's happened now they've they've tried to do a lot to to change things i'm not saying it's perfect but it's not like it's not like it was having said that i left six years ago now but what was the first hazardous situation you got into (laughs) (laughs) right you mean with somebody else or where i put myself at risk were you was at risk one way or the other Okay. Yeah, something that challenged you so, physically, so, mentally, and you know. Yeah. So, so in those days, the the way they manage conflict wasn't like it is now, right? It was it was sort of more. You turn up to a scene, there's a pub fight, and everybody just wades in. 
<laughs> wasn't it, honestly it was there's no technic there's no technical sort of aspect of it whereas now they, they you know they've got really good ways of of, of managing conflict etc so I, 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 you know those days people were were drinking a lot more particularly in that town and so they would get a lot more violent i, I think probably a lot more violent than now in fact and a lot of the time when you you're going to go and arrest you know people who are well known you don't tend to have a lot of hassle with them they usually you talk to them and they come but when you go to scenes where people are in the influence of alcohol or or other stuff it, it, you know the, that's where you you tend to get violent so so there were times when you know you you go in and you you've got to use <laughs> use your size or whatever else to to deal with difficult things but it wasn't most of the time and uh and there was a couple of times when I'd I'd been out my, on my own on patrol and I'd seen things and then had to react to them. But most of the time, I think people were usually quite compliant. Maybe that was because of the way I communicate with people because they weren't always compliant. Some people tend to, <laughs> some people got a harder time than me. You so know? what were the riots like? Because I actually know someone who used to be part of the Mets yeah, riot police. I, I, you know yeah. what? I didn't actually, I'm just trying to think. I didn't actually, I've been on riot training. But right. because I was a detective, I didn't have to go to a lot of that stuff because it was usually people who were doing the uniform public order stuff. Right. As a detective, you always go up and pick up the pieces afterwards. You with me? Which isn't always easy. But um, but yeah, it was it was it was in eighty five when I joined. It was kind of what the hell's going on. But then once you start to get used to the fact that they're having rights because that, was, that wasn't the only time. You you tend to find that you, you know, it's just one of those things that happens, you know. Um, but, yeah, I didn't, I'd, I'd been, I was, I was a PSU supervisor, so I had to go and do the training at times, but I never had to go to a riot and, you know. But I've been to demonstrations and, and done so, but never, never to a riot. Can you take us through the training? Do you have to get sprayed and things like that? Yeah, the training's it's it's quite it's quite physical you've got to wear all this hot um hot gear that's fireproof and it you know as a detective you kind of you're good at talking to people well that's how it was then and you're you know i'm more getting people on side and stuff like that whereas in that scenario you have to change the way you manage you've got to be more you over there now that makes sense and 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 it was a lot of yelling a lot of shouting a lot of fire you know a lot of stuff where you're thinking is this really what people have to go through and they do you know so it's not you you wouldn't necessarily choose to do it but in the service you have to do it you know so um so yeah that was it like Sorry, your, your turn. Your turn. <laughs> well, I, sorry, I haven't got my sheet. You yeah, stole it off me a minute ago. You don't need it. Just go off what you said. God, you didn't prepare me. Now you go. Okay. <laughs> no. All right. Did they have to like spray you then with the you know like riot training in America? I think they they do the spray, and you've got to be sprayed. Did that happen to you? Didn't spray. I mean, the the thing that that gets you is there's a lot of lot of hazard around you. I yeah. mean, apart from the bricks flying over and the shields and things hitting you. Well, you get bricks chucked at you. Yeah, they throw they throw stuff at you, you know, I can't if wooden blocks or bricks, I can't remember now. But it's like it's like a really hazardous kind of uh environment. And then you'll have horses going, so you've got to be watching the horses. <laughs> you so know, where so, is this held? 
Sorry, where is uh, the sound? So they held, they held it as, I think it was held at an arm, old army camp right. in Oxfordshire somewhere. That's, that's where we went. And then sometimes you work with other forces to do the same kind of stuff. So, so yeah, it, there's a lot involved in it. So you have to play both sides then. In one minute, you like a cop. <laughs> Fireman. Arresting the rioters. The next minute, you're a rioter. Yeah. Which one did you It was usually the instructors that were there doing that. But then you had to go and arrest people. And yeah. They, look, it's a memory thing for me. But there's all these tactics about how you take people out and this, that, the other, you know. So it's it's quite, quite. But it wasn't my favourite stuff, to be honest. Yeah. But, yeah. but I had to do it. So all the other cops you've interviewed then, quite quickly, they've encountered corpses in various situations. What was it like for you encountering your first corpse? Oh. I'm trying to think when the first one was, but most cops in my day, I'm not sure what happens now, had to go to a post-mortem, mm. right? And, uh, and see it on the slab first. Abs- absolutely right. right. But you had to watch the post-mortem, that makes sense. Because sometimes you're, you're having to, to, to provide the evidential chain from the scene to, to the post-mortem to taking away the samples and, and stuff like that. So, so I don't want to get too gory, right? I'll but, go for but, it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, when they, they, when they have to open the cranium, you know, you'll hear that saw, uh, you know, cracking, cracking the skull and stuff like that. And it's got a particular type of odour. You know, oh, that, that some people find <laughs> some people find really, really tough. You know, some people are oh, can't go in, blah, blah, blah. But that's what you have to do. Now, the interesting thing is that, you know, throughout, you're not doing it every week, but maybe four times, four or five times in your career, you'll have to go. But after a while, it gets normal. Does that make sense? The and smell, the... It just gets normal. And this is where I'm saying about, about, about the way the human psyche works. The first day you go to a scene, right, everybody, oh, that's terrible, that's awful, blah, blah, blah. The next day, the body's in situ and people are having a cup of tea. I don't mean that disrespectfully, Mm. but they've got used to the fact that we're now in in the midst of an investigation, we've got to do a job. And they're not thinking about how bad it was. Does that make sense? So it's almost like your mind is capable of changing the way you see situations. Right. But you don't always know that because you don't realize that your mind is giving yourself a hard time at the time. Does that make sense? So. When when people talk about about those things, my memories aren't necessarily about the blood and gore because they're very they're very faint now. It's like I've processed them so I can hardly see them anymore. One that I remember I, I did. I did remember for a while until I did my training was one where I went to house and it was, this is, this is DS stuff for you. You've got to go there because they're not sure why somebody's passed away. And a lot of time when you go, there's no, there's no suspicious circumstances and there wasn't in this case. However, the guy had died in front of a fire and he'd been there for like two weeks. And so when you see, he's just sitting in the chair like this and he's really bloated. (laughs) You know, and that's what, and that's the sort of thing you have to, people don't realize you see all the glamour stuff on TV and you think, oh, well, you know, they go around in a suit and this, that, the other, but there's all that side of it. I think that people don't really realize happens. The grim and the gory. And yeah, and, 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 and as I say, there's no suspicious circumstances. So at the end of a shift like that, then when you've encountered a bloated corpse, how do you sleep at night yeah (laughs) yeah you know and that's the point you don't always retain it the things you retain 
uh, are not always like that. I'll tell you one that I did, re- well, I didn't retain it, but I'll tell you one that was that was more interesting. So uh, there was a guy who was quite a big guy. And um, he, you know, he's one of these guys who's gone through life and and misfortune, etc., etc. Wasn't looking after himself, lived in his parents' house. Mum had passed away, wasn't paying the bills. You, you get what I'm saying? And uh, and then one day decided enough was enough, mm. right? And so they called us to that, and he'd, he'd basically put a rope up through the ceiling and uh, into the into the loft, right? And then basically, as the hatch had come down, the knot had dropped, and then he stood on a he'd stood on a chair, and um, yeah, he stood on a chair and dropped, and then hung himself. So we got oh, wow. there. The house was absolutely freezing. And there was there was me as the DS, and there was a scenes of crime officer, and we we're going there to see if there's any foul circumstances. And um, so so I was the guy in charge. So they said to me, "We can't, we can't, we need to go and look at the knot. We can't get the knot out of the out of the loft." So uh, so they're trying to get this knot, and as as, he, as they're getting the knot off, he's still hanging there. We can't really do anything until we get the knot. Do you try said, and hold him up a bit? Or? Yeah, you, yeah, you know what I'm saying? He was a big guy though, right? Yeah. And so so I said, well, just not, just get a broom and not the, not the loft, right? Not the loft hatch. And so they started knocking this loft hatch. And the next minute, the rope came down and he went, <gasps> No! <laughs> no! That is horror film material. Oh that is awful. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You felt right. Guess what yeah. I did? Guess what I did? I ran out. <laughs> I'm just gonna... I've never seen a dead man come back to life. <laughs> oh, so, I hear yeah. a lot that, you know, obviously they pass a lot of wind and stuff. Does a lot That's of water come yeah, out? Yeah, he wasn't alive. He wasn't alive. It, that, yeah. but, but but because because you just don't expect to hear a gas. No. So you just <laughs> Straight out of Stephen you know, King. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Drop yeah. and roll. Yeah. But, was, was that was what it? I don't share too often, but yeah, it's true. Was that the situation that frightened you the most out of your entire career? Or was there something even worse that you... Major jump. You know what? I I this I think the thing that probably frightened me the most once I was. This is in uniform, and and it's like three o'clock in the morning. We get to a building, and somebody says, "Oh, somebody may have broken into the building." And I was I was like this right in the passenger seat, and they said they used to call me Smurf. I said Smurf, go and have a look on the roof. Hi, Smurf. Ian Ian Smith Smith ah, Washington see. Smith. Yeah. So so I, I jumped on. I jumped out the car. Climbed on the roof. The next minute, I fell through. No. <laughs> fell through, and I took the whole roof in with Ooh. me. And I fell. I fell into a wood yard, oh. and it caught my back. You know? And then I was thinking afterwards. I was thinking, you know, like you think, oh, how bad's this gonna be? This, yeah, that, the other. And uh, it's my fault. I didn't think. You just, you just don't think. You know. Anyway, I was, I was supposed to be two percent disabled following it, but whether I'm or not, I don't know because I don't really feel it now. Right. But that that was probably the most frightening time I had. Wow. Yeah. How long were you led there for? I, I was probably off for about five weeks. Yeah. Yeah. I was probably off for about five weeks. It wasn't as bad as I, as I initially thought. Right. So what were the biggest challenges psychologically during the early years of your 30-year career? Now I understand them. Now I understand more about how the mind works. It was more, it was more stress stuff. It was more... People always talk in the service about 
about stress being about the things that you go and see. And I mean, we'll talk afterwards about more about how I understand that now. But it was more about have you well, let's say it like this: when I when I went from Staffordshire, it was all burglaries and robberies and this, that, the other, you know, that type of crime. And then I went to work in Slough. I moved to Thames Valley, and that's my connection with Windsor and round there. And uh, and I and I was I, I was a DS there, and. It was a totally different environment there. There was a lot of shootings, a lot of this, a lot of that. I'm not saying well, that people were getting shot. Oh, well, yeah, I've done a few talks in Slough. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, Slough is like all the shot of that area. There was a lot the of stuff going on. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Wow. But, but, but it stops at, at Windsor. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I live the other side. It's we don't really do it out there, just in Slough, yeah. Stops, <laughs> stops at the Queen's Garden. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very strange, is that, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so in those days, it was more, you know, he's a good lad. You know, he can he can manage it, this, that, the other. We'll put him in the chair. It, there wasn't so much of the selection process that there is now. And and obviously, I'd been a DC before as well. So I sat down there to this new environment of threats to life where you had no training to manage threats to life. And I was like, I was going home thinking, will that person be okay? Will that family be okay? Blah, blah, blah. And the tactics you use, there's only so many tactics you can use. You with me? So you, there, there is an element of risk that you you kind of have to let you kind of have to manage, you know. Or so that was the, for me. That was the bit. It was like, what if something happens? What if? What if? What if? Until you learn that there's only so much you can do, and you they talk about this stuff. Your policy, the way you, the way you, uh, the way you explain your actions is actually what protects you. And you, you have to realise that, and that's how you manage risk. Wow! But for people who don't, people who don't learn that, it's it's a it's a very stressful thing to have to do. If you get what I'm saying, you know, yeah. it's very stressful. But you kind of have to learn how you manage risk. So you must have had your fun moments. I heard um, a story of someone once who worked for the Met, and he was in the riot police, but then he went over to the. Being on the Thames, yes. uh, the boat patrol, whatever it is. Best job you can get. It I'm is. Not one that he I used had. to pick up his daughters um, <laughs> on the side of the Thames and take them home after a night out. But anyway, he would tell me a story about how obviously they're fishing out all the um, corpses out mm. of the Thames from time to time from suicides. Lovely. Mm. Um, and they would hook it up. And they got banned from doing that because the autopsy kept coming back that they couldn't determine the death because of the hook going in. But the best thing was, well, not the best thing, uh, but the most in- interesting, slightly amusing story I heard is when they put a corpse on a deck chair and sailed it down the Thames with a pair of shades on and they got an absolute trouble for that. Did you have any fun moments like that? <laughs> no. no. Not quite like that. They no. did get in a lot of trouble, apparently, quite, I, bet, but, I, bet, yeah. I bet they did, and they definitely would now. I bet that's a long time ago now. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. bet it's a long time ago now. I'm trying to think fun moments. Um, I mean, there was there were a lot of jokers when I started you with me there were a lot of characters I, d- I don't know if it really attracts those types of people now and a lot of them were were guys who were plumbers or whatever who who turned their hand to whatever and, and they, they made really good really good cops um, but now it's kind of you have to have a degree to go in so it's attracting a, a different type of clientele that's what, that's what I'd say so in Slowden gun crime it's you know that's an escalation of the other crimes you've described when you investigate like a gun crime then what unique challenges does that present and you come after 
you're in the aftermath, aren't you? You're yeah. not chase. Are you? Are you yeah. then chasing the bad guys? Once you've got the information, you're going out. And yeah, make... no, it doesn't doesn't really work. Like, I how, mean, how does it, it work? it's all it's all it's all now like completely safe. You with yeah. me? So so for me to be unarmed and come across somebody who is armed, you'd have to be quite unlucky. You know, I, I would say you'd have to be quite unlucky because once you get that information, you call in a firearms team. And everything is assessed on, on the intelligence you have so that you make sure that when you go through the door, you've got the right people with you to make sure that it's done quite safely. And to be honest, it is done safely. Most of the time it is. And there aren't that many people in the UK compared to the, the states that get shot because they're very good at what they do. And, uh, and they're very, they've, they've got good operational means of managing those types of things. So yeah, so, so you do get, it is a bit strange, though, when you the way the way people's attitudes to guns is. I, I remember one time I went to uh, a, a young Asian guy got shot and um, I went to see him in hospital and we were, we were trying to find some of the witnesses. And one of his one of his one of his friends was was another Muslim guy, you know, a young Muslim guy. So I said to him, I said, where are we going to find him on a Friday? And he says, what time is it? And I told him the time and he says. You'll be at the mosque, and you'd never think in in you know the way we're brought up, so to speak, you know that that you'd get somebody like that who was who was who was who was going to the mosque as well, you know. But, but different communities think differently, you know. Okay. And what are people getting shot over in Slough? Is it drug gangs? Then it was all it was all about drugs, yeah, all about drugs and crime, all about drugs and crime, and people falling out. Oh, yeah, mostly drugs, to be honest. What was the most popular drug in Slough? I'm going to guess it's weed and coke. Weed and coke, I would say. They're yeah. consistently at the top, aren't they? Weed and coke. To be, you know, I'll be honest with you, a lot of the time, particularly towards the end, it was it, it became sort of a regional thing. You know, the that it was like a, it was like it was the people that were really making the big money that they were going after. So a lot of the a lot of the the little things that were happening on the street they weren't really focusing on those as much, you know. What about county lines? Yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, Slough, Hampshire. They're all over the place, aren't they? <laughs> they're all over Slough. the place. Yeah, yeah. Is it Hampshire? Slough? I presume so. It's not Surrey. No, no, no. Slough's Slough's Berkshire. 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 Right. Okay. Yeah. So can you explain to the viewers then what the problem is of county lines? What it means. Yeah, uh, when you know when I started, it's it's just people taking advantage of other people's vulnerability, you know. And when I started, um, there were other communities that were doing it. There were there were people pimping young girls and this, that, the other. And and I think it went through a period where there was a lot of that, and you'll see that <clears throat> with all this stuff with social services and and young kids being taken advantage of, not just. Uh, or, yeah, they, know, well, they it, it, they call it different things, but they they call it. But there was other communities <laughs> doing it when I when I first started. Timestamp uh, all that. Okay, well, yeah, there was other, there was other communities doing when I first started, um, but then it sort of moved where they they're now taking over vulnerable people's houses out of town right. in order to set up drug dealing and and this that the other. And it become it became quite a problem. I don't, as I said, five years ago, it seems now. They seem to be getting a grip of it because it was like the number one priority. 
but once upon a time it was it was it was a real problem so could you just explain to the viewers how county lines is set up then what do they you said they take advantage of these vulnerable young people what do they make them do have you got any examples from your career not really from mine no okay. not not really from mine but from what i understand of it um they they'll they'll take over the premises that they're in they can then set up there and from their trade, because obviously the premises that that vulnerable person isn't 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 usually known by the police, so they kind of got free range to start the business from there, and then they start dealing from there. That's 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 how I understand it. So they're like fall guys. Mm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. They are clamping down on it, though. I've noticed. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's, yeah. A, it's it's been a big it's been a big priority, a real priority. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been a real priority. So what do you think then about like these cops who are part of LEAP who are saying that drug laws are creating the drug problem by making it illegal and you create this black market and all the criminality around it. If the government just took it over, people would know they were getting safe substances. Kids could be sequestered from it and educated about it and there wouldn't be all these backstreet drug deals. What, what, what worry you with all that stuff? Stuff. <laughs> I got more scouse. I got more scouse when I'm talking to Darren, and more Widnesian when I'm talking to. So I'm a woolly back now. Yeah. Um, my my view would have been once upon a time that it it wouldn't help, sort of you know, changing the way they manage it. But my view now is probably they've got to do something different, and and other countries that you know, like Holland that are trying to manage it differently are having having different results. What do you I, think of California then at the moment? Well, yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, I don't know exactly what's going on there, but I know that their 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 attitude towards it is, is, is now more liberal than it was and, and, and they're tr- trying to test in places. And, and They've got lower and, crime rates. And exactly. So I think, I think we've got to ask the question, why why aren't they willing to consider doing things slightly differently that makes sense because we don't seem to be succeeding now and there are a lot of people suffering uh because of it you know a lot of people suffering because of it but yeah because the cartel was supplying california wasn't it and now they've they've put them out of business with the weed at least yeah yeah but i mean they don't just suffer because of drugs they also suffer because of alcohol that's another thing you know, we don't really killer. talk about that, do we? Yeah, but, um, the harm of alcohol. Yeah, you know, I watched you at school talk, didn't I? Talk about that. Yeah, we asked. He asked all the kids, "What do you think the biggest, you know, drug out there kills people?" And yeah, they, I don't think anyone got it's it. Funny today. they know because we, it's funny yeah. they know, isn't it? Because we probably wouldn't have thought that when we were. Younger. I didn't even think it was a drug. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. It's just so socially conditioned. Oh yeah, you celebrate, drink, you sorrow, drink. It's always the way. It's terrible. Yeah, mm. yeah. So looking back then, what like big cases are you proud of? Any big guys you arrested? I think in the in in so just before I did that last job, which <laughs> which was interesting in terms of 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 how criminality affects the police service. I was managing uh, an intelligence unit in, in, in Slough and that, that was actually more focused on organised crime groups. We're going to all of it now. But I think 
for me, that's where the challenge is. That makes sense because actually there's somebody who is driving the crime. You know, it's not always the little guy on the street who's doing that. It's it's a bigger picture. So I suppose it was more doing the bigger picture stuff where you where you're involved in larger operations across counties that actually make an impact more of an impact than just dealing with the little guy who's doing this or doing that so was that your proudest moment yeah i would say so okay yeah are you there when they grab the big bad guys i have been there when they grab the big bad guys yeah. <laughs> what, what's a day my, like that like can you take my, us through my, it my my thought would be this so so there's always a lot of planning right if they're that bad there might be a firearms team or they might not depends on the information you've got but I would say most of the time when you, you go and have to grab the big bad guys, they know that they need to speak to you and they're going to have to speak to you. And usually if they come and speak to you and you've got no evidence, then they're going to go. If they play up, then you're going to have some evidence. How many that- squealers though? Seen like not, 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 it doesn't really work like that. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't always work like that. It doesn't always work like that. Um, but a lot of that really depends on your relationship and a lot of that depends on you don't always get anything for nothing, if you know what I'm saying. Haven't they got the money to have a lawyer there right away to like protect themselves from questioning? Yeah, they do. They do. Yeah. But there was a time, you know, once upon a time when there were a lot of conversations that were outside of that outside of that situation but that was very early days you with me whereas now it's it's all like by the book and they know you know and so it's very different situation now so perhaps you know maybe things were sorted out more easily once upon a time than they are now you prefer that method (laughs) i preferred it then but you have to go with the times don't you you have to go with the times so talk about your experience with corruption yeah, that was that's very very interesting. That is because um, you don't really get a view into that side of policing until you go into that type of department, and you kind of have to be trusted to go into that type of department. And um, you kind of have access to everything that goes on in the force. You with me? Uh, so that you so you kind of sit outside and stand above it all. And I thought that I was going to be finding a lot of brown envelopes, a bit like you see on 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 the thing. But I, I think more you find people with just fallibility, mm. you know, people who can be too nice, people who are worried about. <laughs> <laughs> we had a, we had a prison guard, and he was a very, very nice guy. Yeah, he started salary was eighteen thousand, and the gang was offering him five hundred pounds per package to bring in. And you could just see how he fell into it. And he's taking, you know, going on holidays with his family and stuff with the money. And- Beautiful, absolutely evil. right. Yeah, absolutely. And mm. I, and I think, and you also, this is this is what this is all about. People, really, isn't it? And then you get people who are so worried about their reputation that they'll do things that they would never think of doing. That makes sense. So the 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 drivers for 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 corruption aren't always just that money thing. You with me? Sometimes they're like it's just personal fallibility. There was a guy who um, he'd done a lot of Navy service uh, and then maybe had six or seven years police service to finish or whatever. He was 18 months before he was going to finish. And we were doing this investigation and um, 
it had come to us from another agency who had been looking at somebody and this guy had uh kent ocg was trying to get some some drugs through from algeria had a little bit of a cash flow problem because of ramadan couldn't move them on so so he's now like right i've got all these guys to pay what am i gonna do so um he says, right, I'll get some class B and I'll be able to get it to, you know, from somewhere else and I'll be able to get it to the port in France. So he gets it to some port in France. And then he's thinking, how can I get it over to the UK? I need a boat driver. Right. So he then starts trying to find out who can drive this boat, trying to find out where this, who, who's got the right CV. He says, I know what I can do. I can, I can ask my ex-brother-in-law. And this ex-brother-in-law was in Thames Valley, <sighs> unfortunately. And and that was one of the things that we investigated. And 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 when you when you when I met this guy, you know, there was no evidence he'd ever done anything like that before. It was just a phone call from an ex brother in law asking him to do a favour. He does a check, and then he's right in the middle of this thing. Well, how wow. did you find out about it then? So we got the information from another agency. If you get what I'm saying, Intel. Yeah. Hmm. And right. so we and you get you get stuff that's true. You get stuff that's not true. You have to look into it. And if you... GCHQ. <laughs> no, it wasn't, it wasn't them. No. <laughs> they may not tell us, actually. <laughs> yeah, so, so yeah, and he ended up getting 18 months. Right. So if you're, if you're an anti-corruption department policing the police, does that make you some enemies within the police? Yeah, most, you know, a lot of people don't really understand it and they, they fear it because they, they kind of think that you're, probably going to go and try and stitch them up and that's not really what it was about Are you with me mm. um and a lot of the time you're doing you're kind of smoothing things so that so that you can protect the reputation of the force that's the first thing and also um prevent you know there's some <laughs> there are some people who who do get in and for whatever reason, they've got the wrong attitude. You know, they, there are some people who do try and take it advantage, take advantage of victims and stuff like that. And they need to be sorted out and definitely and removed from the service, you know. So, so it wasn't just that. And I think people respect that. But I think most of the time, again, it, it depends how you deal with people. I had, I had a good team who were good at talking to people. Definitely. And uh, yeah, in, in this unit. I mean, sometimes they police officers will complain that not all PSDs are like that. If you watch Lion of Duty, you get people that <laughs> you get people that. I was do disappointed the, with that ending. The, oh, were you? <laughs> I didn't see the last one. Yeah. Oh, no yeah. spoilers. No spoilers. <laughs> you get people who do the overt stuff, and they're a bit black and white. You did it wrong. I did it right. You know that sort of stuff. But when you're in that world, you kind of have to be able to see in the grey a little bit. You with me? Because you can't always smooth things over or deal with things efficiently if you're always black and white. Mm, definitely. Talking about cops gone bad then, we've got this horrific situation that happened recently. Oh, with, with Wayne. With um, cousins, is it? Wayne Cousins. cousins. Yeah. What, what's your thoughts on that case? I think, and he, I mean, it worries me a little bit because the way the media have got it, it it's sort of making it seem like Every woman is a, it can be threatened by it, it needs to feel threat, threatened or be in fear of, of police officers. That's not really mm. the case. And I think that, you know, whatever people might say, they're more aware of people who are like that now than they ever were when I started. So to say that you're now more at risk and, 
and the way people talk about it, in my view, isn't true. Um, but, you know, he clearly had a problem and, uh, and, 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 and it's good that they've, they've, they've come, you know, sorted it out and, 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 and he's facing justice. That's good. It's a good thing. Has he had his sentencing? Didn't he I get, didn't he get, yeah. has he been sentenced, cousins yet, guys? Do you know? Didn't he get a life sentence or something? Oh, he might have. Whole life. Whole life, that good. was it. Yeah. yeah. Good. Yeah. So, so where did you go after working at Slough? So, a smile on your face there. So, so, <laughs> yeah, so Slough, Slough, I, I finished in 2012. And then the, my last three years, I was, I was working out in the, in the, in the sticks doing all this sneaky beaky stuff. You with me? <laughs> and I, and I, and I didn't get, ma- I got married later on in life. So, and my wife didn't want to live in Slough. <laughs> Posh girl, yeah. So, so, so we 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 then moved to London, and then I had this fifty-mile journey up to Red, up past Reading, to where we were based, and and back every day. And I think that's what sort of started taking its toll a bit. Whereabouts in London did you move to? Battersea. Is it Battersea? Nice? Yeah, Battersea. Yeah, it's cool. It's cool. Oh, right, cool. It's cool. Yeah. So, 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 I was living there since I was about. For in my forty early forties, I think that's when when I first moved there. Um, what was the question? I've lost the question. <laughs> so I asked where you went after Slough, and you said you did. So your first twenty seven years then is up to Slough. Yeah, and then last three years. Last three years was doing the. the so what have we stuff. missed out over this twenty seven years? The big stories. In there, I mean, I did, I did all sorts of things. I did, I, I kind of varied a little bit. I went into managing a diversity unit. Uh, I went into. Uh, to set up the first domestic violence unit as it was then. What was your first domestic violence case? Oh, there were so many. I mean, I, we'll talk about this later, but I'm, I'm sort of a people person. So you like to provide solutions for people. You with me? And I went into that unit and the guy, the guy that was my boss, he just had twins. So it's like, you sort it out, blah, blah. He's just like, you carry on doing it. And he was building links with communities protecting the vulnerable it was all sorts of stuff doing in one and i think i I got a bit overwhelmed with it you know it sort of got the better of me really and i had a bit of a stress a stress thing then but um there were various really and and a lot of the time people didn't realize that they had options you know sometimes they kind of they they get into a situation with a partner or whatever and they think that's their life and they come away from it and they think I can only go back. And, and so it was, I, I was, I probably got too much trying, drawn into trying to empower people. That makes sense. You can't help everybody. You have to learn that you can only do so much. But there was, there was all sorts of cases then, all sorts of, all sorts of Horrific. different cases. Yeah. yeah. All sorts of different cases. What would you say was the worst? Well, I mean, there were, there were murders. As a, as you know, as a result of domestic violence, there were mm. people doing things like cutting other people's brake pipes, you know, jealousy, all the stuff, anything you talk about that humans can do, they were they were doing, and um, and and it was good because we didn't really understand it very well until they had that specialism, and that was a time when they started to bring investigators in. That's why I went in, you know, one of the, you know into it so that we could actually protect victims more effectively before they didn't really understand it and and they they didn't really 
have any risk management systems until until that time. So they deal with it a lot more effectively now than they did. Definitely, Good. definitely. Good news. So often we see domestic violence in the aftermath of it. They get back together. Perhaps the guy. It's usually a guy. I'm just saying. Yes. That. And he's, he's, you know, promising he's never going to do that again. He's charming. And what, what, what do you say to people who feel that they may be trapped in that cycle of abuse? They're watching this. I think number one, you've got options. The options may not always seem easy, but then that's how life is. You with me? But sometimes you've got to kind of say, well, is this suiting me? You know, a lot of people that get into that situation. They're more thinking about the individual that that individual than thinking about themselves, and that's what gets them stuck. I was you know? in a domestic violence relationship um, very heavily. I ended up in a hospital. That's what so, gets yeah. them stuck, though, don't you? I went you... back probably three, four times. Yeah, mm. there's yeah. all sorts of reasons why people go back. Are you with me? And it's all about well, if I can't have him, am I good enough? All, all of yeah, that sort of stuff. Self-confidence. Yeah, yeah, and um, and and I would say that it's it's one of those. One of those tests that comes in life and you and you gotta kinda make a decision, otherwise it comes round again and again and again until you until you Best grow decision. and then you yeah. learn that you can you can move through it and move. And you have to rebuild it. yourself, yeah. What made you decide to get out of that? It was the when I went to hospital, my mum came up um at the time to Western Supermare where I was living and had to come obviously get me out of hospital. I could barely walk. And Jesus. she dragged me back to the village where I came from and said, you're not going back there. Mm. And it took me a good few months to get my confidence back up. I'd still text him oh and call God. him. Yeah. Even after that? He dragged me through a window, sat on me and just beat the shit out of me once. Oh, my God. Yeah, because I uh, didn't answer my phone one night. Yeah. Case like that. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Jealousy. Yeah. Was he like high on drugs or alcohol? He, he was a cokehead um, and a dealer. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and an extreme gambler. Drinker, anything you name it. Yeah, yeah horrible man. Because I think I said to you, I'm friends with most of my ex-partners. That is the one person who I will not speak to again. Well, interestingly, you, was mm. he like that when you met him? No, I lost a lot of weight when I was 25. So I was quite a bit bigger. I was about size uh, 14 to 16 when I met him. And he used to take the piss out of me and stuff. And then I lost a load of weight um, due to getting ill. And he, yeah... He obviously took more of an interest in me, swarmed towards me, and then the jealousy started. And that's when the beating started. Yeah. And yeah. going through my phone, yeah. kicking the shit out of so me. So actually his jealousy brought the worst out in him. Yeah. And if he wasn't jealous, he's probably all right. Am he I was right? all right. And yeah, that's, the, was, that's, the, that's the point yeah, I'm making. as soon as I, you know, he was yeah, obsessed. Human beings can either Mental. be their best self or their worst self. Definitely. You know, we all have it in us to do that. And when you're your worst self, you never act according to your values. You're with me, and that, and that can be for a for a for a, for a month, a week, a lifetime. You know, it doesn't really matter. It just depends. Definitely. And and if you don't confront it, it will always take the better of you. Definitely. So, did you find then that the victim of the abuse after in the aftermath would start to like go back to that person and refuse to talk to you? Yeah, they did. I think sometimes because you'd work with them and support them and stuff, and and it's not just about the police. That's important. There's, I found out then, after you know, after maybe twenty years service, there's all these agencies out there who are trying to support victims of domestic violence, and they do a great job doing it because 
they do need a bit of support to make the right decisions sometimes. And they do get stuck, as, as you saw then. And you kind of think, I don't, in that stuck moment, you don't think I've got any options. And, and the point is, you will have options. You know, you may need a bit of support to get there, but you will. So, yeah, there were a lot that, that went back. And I think sometimes they thought, oh, we've let you down because we've got back and you'd got them to the point where you're going to prosecute them and now we don't want you to prosecute, you know. So, so I understand why they were like that. So I never, I was, I didn't lose heart over it because I always thought to myself, either they're going to go with it or they're not. You know, it's a possibility they won't. So it didn't disappoint me that they didn't. It must be I so disheartening when they go back. Well, seen like, it time and time again. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You, I accept that they might. Mm. So because I accept that they might, I'm not saying I think it's the best decision for them, but I understand the decision, so I accept it, you see. So so that's how that's how I used to deal with it. Yeah. Did any go back and end up seriously hurt or dead? I can imagine that's definitely the Seriously case. hurt, yes. Yeah. I've seen that, and I've seen when people have made the wrong decisions around bail. I mean, I think they're better with that now. And you'll get somebody who comes, no, no, I'd never do that. And, they, and then they go back and then straight they do what they straight back to the house. Because I think the police, and, if I'm uh, incorrect, please uh, correct me, that the police these days uh, have the power to overrun someone because they used to have always the woman go be persuaded by the man. I'm just saying woman, man in that case. Um, would Sorry, the woman would then um, be like, and um, press the charges or release the charges or something, and then. But now the police can take it into their own hands and press charges well, themselves. The C, it's something. the C, yeah, the CPS can. CPS, Under certain yeah, circumstances, it. I think they can do that. Yeah, to yeah. Put, to protect where where there's a threat of harm. It's but it's still not easy to prosecute somebody if if, if the, the victim is not supporting no. it. It's very difficult, you know. But they're, I suppose now they've got these recorded. Uh, interviews and stuff they can use them more effectively but mm. but it's not it's not easy to do if somebody's not supporting it no. you know okay. so which department then did you find did you enjoy the most and which did you find the most challenging i think the last one was the most was the was the best because i had a small team and they were all right on you, you with me they're all flexible in their thinking and uh, and because of that, you we got some really good results and 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 some difficult things. You, you with me? Difficult things to sort out, but they were sorted out well. Um, I think the most challenging one I had was. Well, I mean, this is just really. It wasn't really about the crime. It was the people I was dealing with. I was dealing with a a group of people that were were um, very stuck in their ways, and and the. I'd gone there because they wanted to change the way they perform and they weren't interested in changing the way they perform. <laughs> and it was like every day mm. going in and having this headache of trying to get people to do stuff, you know. So that, it, it, those were my real challenge. Those are the things I remember as my challenges. The stuff with, with, with dealing with criminals and people, I mean, I, I talk to criminals like I'm talking to you. I don't, I don't judge them. You know, I don't, right. I see the humanity in people. And so I've always been able to build rapport with people. And I suppose that's why I went on to do what I do now. How good are you telling a liar? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, I mean, once upon a time interviewing was fun. <laughs> it used to be fun because. Because they said you, about like, don't they look to the right or the left or something? I'm, well, I'm well, right, half the time because. Because you've done the work before you get them in the interview, you already know what they've what done the before. Mm. And you're, you, and once upon a time, you'd also be able to have the evidence 
right under the table and you let them tell them <laughs> half you know half a day spend of them lying and oh really you're nodding yet and then you bring the evidence out and they start whip it out well that was when it was fun it's not like that now because <laughs> so you have to disclose now so did you have to be trained in interrogation techniques yeah you know it's funny when i went on a course uh, a detective's course and it was it was more of an endurance than anything else then. It was like you had to do learn the law, but then you had to go out at night. This was in Wakefield. <laughs> right. yeah. And there's a big drinking culture going on there. So it was an ordeal. So, But you you did learn a lot from it. Uh, and, and you did learn about interviewing. But it kind of, the way they interview now wasn't how they interview then. Now, then it was more about building rapport and, and having evidence but they don't know what you've got and it's all a bit more of a negotiation whereas now it's a bit like this is the evidence we've collected and it's more to the solicitor yeah it's yeah. more it's not it's not quite like it used to be mm. did you prefer it back in them days <laughs> it was more it was definitely more fun then yeah, yeah and you had more you had a much what more was your rapport. technique back then then I mean, then it was it was he was just getting people on side, really. He's yeah. getting people on side, but Good you'd cop, also, yeah. Well, yeah, I suppose that, yeah. But you'd you'd also you'd also um, quite often get people that knew them on side. If you if you know what I'm saying, so you'd always know a bit more than they thought you knew mm. because you were always talking to people. Was it a fun game then? Yeah, it was. It was more. It was. To me, it was well, more was fun job, then. But... It was more fun then. I didn't, towards the end of my career, I didn't really enjoy interviewing and I didn't really do much of it because I was a manager then. But, um, but yeah, it was, I would say, yeah, it's more fun then. A word from our sponsor. Do you want to know what it's like to hang out with the MS-13 in El Salvador? Or how the Russian mafia came to Brooklyn in the 1990s? Or why some Swedish gang members love to throw grenades? If you've enjoyed my stories of hanging out with the New Mexican Mafia, cartel members, Italian Mafia, you will love the Underworld podcast. It's a show about organised crime all over the world, from the first gang lords to the current kingpins. Hosts Danny Gold and Sean Williams are investigative journalists who've worked all across the globe covering the most insane crime stories from interviewing cult gangs in Nigeria to chasing meth barons through the Burmese jungle and way, way more. Mixing in thorough research and some of the best gangster history in recent memory. They're bringing you a new episode every week. We're talking Taliban, triads, warlords, drug lords and scammers from Brooklyn to Beijing and far beyond. If you want to dive deep into the criminal underworld with two journalists who have reported on it all over, give it a listen. The Underworld Podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The link will be in the description box below this video. So you put down then, um, do we really understand the influences on criminal behavior? What do you mean by that? I think that... um when I first started, you learned about the good people and the bad people. And then you learn a bit more and then you learn that there's the advantage and disadvantages. But does that really explain why people behave the way they do? You with me? Mm. 
and uh, and now having come away learned something new and looking back on it i understand behaving of it in a very different way and there's all sorts of other drivers that 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 mean that people go and get into 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 the criminal world is it usually abuse produces abuse well they they you know there's there's that kind of psychodynamic psychological view that says that your parents parents determine how you behave now but that can't be true because would all your siblings behave in the same way well, they don't no, do they a two shoes. yeah so, so there must be <laughs> there must be other influences that determine how you respond to situations and that's that's what what i was really interested in and um so for instance in that presentation that uh, that we did there was a there's a woman in the states and the first thing you'll notice about is she's orange so she's very concerned about her appearance right and she was she was she was running a nursery <clears throat> well you wouldn't do this she's running a nursery <clears throat> and and basically she got some a really heavy sentence because she was drugging the kids in her nursery oh no so that she could go to the gym I thought you were no. going to say to a tanning salon, but to so the gym. she could go to the gym, right. right? So clearly, she's got such an obsession about the way she looks that she had to go to the gym, even though it meant that. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So there's other drivers. I mean, commonsensically, why, why would you even do that? Why would you even do that? But she, you can see there's other drivers sometimes that drive people into doing things. It's not just what you think. So in the old days, you'd say she was evil. Or is it actually she's got a problem? Yeah. You see? And so when you see even even with drugs, a lot of stuff with drugs, well, particularly the it's compensatory. It's people compensating for for I'm not saying compensating because they've had a hard life. It's compensating because that's what the mind does when you're in discomfort. If you have a hard day at work, what do you do? You get home and you might reach for a beer or you reach for a glass of wine. But that's because it's connecting to the hard day at work. Mm. So saying that there's a lot more driving behavior than, than you would think. And, um, and my thing is, is when you, when you can understand those influences, maybe you've got more choice in how you determine your responses. Cause a lot of your responses are just subconscious. They're just based on what you've come to believe. And then it becomes your habit. And then you act. Addictions. So that, mm. Well, addictions are part of it, aren't they? Because it's not just drink, drugs, rock and roll that's addictive, gambling, whatever. It's going sugar. to the gym. Yeah, sugar. Sugar. <laughs> yeah. You know, and you see, like, you see some bodybuilders, you know, and, obsessive. and, and, and they're so obsessive. And yeah. you see kids these days, and if you don't have the obligatory six pack, you don't take your shirt off. Social it wasn't media. like that in our day, you know. Yeah. So we've seen a recurring thing on this channel of people we've interviewed who have suffered sexual abuse as kids and then they've not been able to process it, they've not been able to deal with the trauma, so they've gone on to in, get into the drug community yeah. and they're self-medicating. And then you see men, they'll do robberies, um, crimes will escalate to finance their drug problem. Women, they might do shoplifting, they might do sex work, and that will escalate you know, in, into criminality as the addiction gets stronger and stronger. Yes. So how how big is um, childhood trauma a root cause of crime? I think I think that's one of the influences on your choices. 
right? Um, but I, I don't think it's the only influence on your choice because it's a bit like, let, let's give an example. A lot of the a lot of the guys I would have been dealing with in Slough, for instance, as I said, when you go to their houses and they've got information, they've got guns. You go to their houses, they've got nothing in them. Well, they've been getting money. But what do they do with it? Easy come, easy go. What you with me? spend it on? Well, more drugs. <laughs> more drugs, guns, cars. <laughs> you know, they don't, they don't actually do anything with it. And, and it, 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 it actually helps you understand that they've got a mentality, right? Now, their mentality means that they live in like a prism or a, or a dimension of thinking, but it doesn't mean that that's the only dimension they can see. You with me? And, and people who, I don't think I haven't met many people who've made a lot of money from it, to be honest. The, the really? ones that no I mean the ones that it. do they lose it the, don't they they, they lose it. it bury it in a field <laughs> <laughs> they lose they it they don't yeah. have the no. um, wherewithal to keep it a no. lot of them they're just, they're just living for the moment mm. no matter how much they make they spend it well and the clever ones you never touch mm. you know what I mean yeah, mm. they'll be making it, but the, you'll you'd never know because they're that good at it. But the ones that you do catch, it, they don't. The ones know. you catch are usually got the flash cars, aren't they? They go around spunking it like on blatant objects. Well, but, they might have a flash car, but then you go to the house, there's you, nothing in it the biggest apart from a plasma. Like <laughs> yeah, they drive around in old bang up cars. Yeah, like, yeah, keep it under wraps. Let's swivel you know? your chair around because it keeps tapping. I know, it's it really keeps tapping. There you go, is that better? Are you stable? Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that right, Joe? Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> no. yeah. you asked that one again. I've, I've, I've yeah, lost my so, so the question was, I asked um, how what bigger factor childhood trauma is in criminality. And you gave the example of like making, you know, people, people, young people want to make money as well. That's another factor. But they're, yeah. just, they're just blowing it as they make it. Then blow, and, and then they think it's their only option. That makes sense. So... So, and again, it's not everybody who's had childhood trauma who will end up in, in, in that criminal world. Some people think, well, this is all I can do, right? And some people think, uh, this is only the way I can make quick money because I need to have all of these things. They don't really need them. They're just telling themselves they need them. Sure. But then some of them, they, they also think that this is a condition of me being okay. Does that make sense? I, yeah. You know, once upon a time, it was having the right train. I mean, it's still like that, isn't it? If I don't have these trainers, the condition is then I'm not okay. So I have to have the trainers. Therefore, I need to get involved in this stuff in order to be okay. So, yeah. it's so they don't realize that it's this idea of being okay that is implanted in them at a particular point in life that isn't necessarily from childhood trauma that is driving their their criminality. It's not actually something else. Did that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. I'm just trying to see what uh, what range of factors there are. Yeah, in criminality, we are, we have done a lot of focus on childhood trauma on this channel, so I'm just curious as to what else is is contributing to crime. Yeah, so poverty. Yeah, yeah, there is. There's 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 Greed. a thing there's a thing that I learned about which we call we call behavioural wiring, and we're not all wired the same, you know, and. Some of us are, are kind of wired to get things done quickly and, and, and task orientated. And we're, we're also then more prone to reputation and standing, right? So when you were in prison, you'll see a lot of people are very much about standing, but not everybody was like that, were they? There's a hierarchy. You get, you get what I'm saying? Yeah. Right. And, uh, and so 
And so this wiring brings different types of behaviors at times, right? So you'll get somebody like me, they call me amiable or green. So I'm like always like surrounded by idiots. (laughs) (laughs) Have you read that? No, no, no. definitely recommend. (laughs) So I'm always looking for trying to bring harmony to a situation, you know, when people are falling out, then you get people who are very creative, probably like you, who are are always trying to bring new ideas. Well, that's what surrounding about idiots is about. It's about the four colors. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you get it. Yeah, definitely a red green. I'm talking Uh, about. No, I'm a red yellow. I'd say you were a proper introvert <laughs> yeah i'm not but sure what extrovert. color he is you know he'd be like a, a, a he's, blue red he's got a bit of yellow hasn't he? <laughs> yellow yellow's creative yeah what about and james and joe <laughs> james and joe detail so, detail man blue blue yeah detail man blue because the yes person is the the green the mm. yes yeah. <laughs> but so definitely not green <laughs> <laughs> yeah but yeah so so then you'll get from that you'll get that some people who who lead and some people follow sheep and shepherds so 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 you'll get you'll get that type of influence as well so they kind of think that if i don't follow then i'm in the out crowd and then there's all the out crowd and the in crowd and who's you know all that sort of stuff affects the way people behave as well but the wiring is very very interesting in terms of detail particularly when people get inflated and they're seeking recognition or they're seeking approval. Recognition is yellow, by the way. Approval <laughs> is green. Mm-hmm. Uh, re- reputation and standing is red. Red, definitely. And status is blue. You get me? Yeah, so all of those yeah. things are happening in your subconscious and driving the way you behave. Mm. But you don't really know because no one's ever told you. How do personalities such as uh, narcissists and psychopaths fit into this then? <laughs> You liked it when I did that um, test. <laughs> so, so the thing about narcissism, and when you say narcissist, I mean, mm. people don't... Everyone's know. got an element of it. Yeah, but they Definitely. don't necessarily know how it's impacting because you're, you're, not, you're not objective about it. We're talking about subjective stuff that you have become and you don't wake up in the morning and think, how am I thinking today? Am I thinking in the most helpful way to negotiate my day, you just get up and think, mm-hmm. don't you? My stuff is really about helping people understand how they think so they can see how it's working for them and how it's working for everybody else around them because a lot of the time it's not, is it? No. <laughs> <laughs> Have you encountered psychopaths in your right profession? <laughs> uh, Watch the foot tapping. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it comes through the mic. Not, oh. not, not that I've... Not that I've not that I've dealt with myself, but I've, I mean, obviously I've been involved in jobs where we've had to deal with people like that. But, um, but more, uh, more stuff with paedophiles. That was, that was something that, that became oh. more prolific as we, as we, well, prolific. I think we just understood it more as, as we went through my career to where it is now, where it's, it's a very different story altogether, you know. What was your first case of that then? Well, I had uh, this. Yeah, that, that brings back memory. Yeah, I had. Um, I think it was probably one of the first internet paedophiles, and um, he was a guy that lived in Buckinghamshire, and he'd been contacting girls as far as Cumbria, uh, and in 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 Surrey. I remember there's some, some nice, really nice family in Surrey being contacting, and uh, and we we set this surveillance job up in the end. 
and they followed him up to Surrey where he met the, he went to meet the girl and then he, then he was arrested. But he was one of the first. She was 13, I think, 13 or 14. So was she co-opted into the sting? Well, no, 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 we, we, no, no, they wouldn't have let it go that far. Oh, okay. He just, he just went up there and he went to a venue that he, he had arranged with her to meet her at. What platform did he use to uh, contact her? Out of interest. Oh, this was this was in two thousand and ten. I can't. Uh, there I was can't. used to be one called Habo Hotel that I knew was quite common for them to yeah, hit yeah. up. My friend had it happen to her. Oh really? Mm-hmm. In Bath. Yeah. What happened? So we were in the guides. Um, we, so we must have been about thirteen, and um, this guy was contacting her, and she arranged to meet him. But we all hid in this old shopping centre in Bath. It's not there anymore. And we rang him and he was outside McDonald's where we arranged to meet him. And we see he was like a 40-year-old man. We all ran off. But it's disgusting. Yeah, absolutely disgusting. Oh, no. And that was through what website? Habbo Hotel. It's shut down now. But it was like a hotel where you'd build little characters. Oh, Do you like remember a game. it? Like a game then. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And you chat to each other like a little chat room. Oh. But you'd like have your little character. Yeah, it was a paedophile's dream. Um, yeah because we've interviewed some people who've been survivors of that crime and the sentences i mean one person it was the, one of the saddest uh, cases i've heard her own dad basically bred her for that and kept a diary of it and everything and he wrote a letter to the judge mocking the whole system because he knew the judge could only give him so many years and the judge said you're the most evil man to ever step in my courtroom but i can only give you this sentence and um what what do you think about do you think they should get longer sentences because it creates seems to create so much chaos all these victims then a lot of them are traumatized get onto drugs and commit crimes themselves and a lot of their lives are ruined so a couple of things i i think first of all the the sentencing needs to be a deterrent i i i, I don't i don't know if it is you know and and there's all sorts of reasons why they're sentenced and there seems to be so many people who are who are being arrested for these types of offences now. You kind of think, well, where are they going to keep them all? Maybe that's a consideration. I don't know, but but to me, it needs to be a deterrent. But I, in terms of 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 being a victim, you know, and there's a lot spoken about about this idea of being a victim. And if somebody comes to me and they want help, and I help people now. Do I want them to stay in that mentality for the rest of their life? You know, the answer is no, I don't want them to. And sometimes some of the ways perhaps that they come to think or they're helped make them think that they're going to be a victim for the rest of their lives. I would want to try and help them compartmentalize it and then move on with their lives. And it's possible to do that. That makes sense. So, I mean, I would say that to people. I'm not belittling their experience. That's not what we're here to do. But actually, it doesn't have to be the story of your life. You know, your life can go on. And, you know, just like somebody else has a moves on and does something, so can you. That's how I would say. So for survivors who are watching this then, who perhaps have uh, not compartmentalized it, what would you say to those people? I'd say, look, there's a lot of help out there, but you've got to try and get the right help, right? And the right help will, how can I say, will help you change the way you think about you know something that's happened in the past it can be your story or it can be a part of your story that you file you know human beings have the ability to file experiences that's one of the things that i help people do now 
And if you file that experience, it doesn't have to keep bothering you. So, so in some, in some, uh, um, some ways of helping, they talk to you, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And yes, that's beneficial, but that's not the only way they can help. You can be helped. You know, there's other ways that can be helped where if something's still bothering you many years after that experience, there are ways to help you file it because the human condition means that you have a system to do that. You go to bed at night and you do this and you file difficult experience. You don't remember every bad experience you have, do you? You know, you can move on. So I would say that if you haven't moved on, then it's a it's an issue where you haven't managed to file it yet. So with your therapy, do you do a sort of timeline breakdown? That's what I did with a therapist once. So you start from the beginning, your worst experiences and sort of build it up and then you file it and file it. Well, it it depends what you're doing. I, I... in in the thing I deal with, it's about processing, and it's it's all about how you see it now. Um, it's because how you saw it then may not be how you see it now. And there's there's three ways of reacting to any situation. There's indifference, there's preference where you have expectations but they may not be met, and there's demand where you're thinking that something absolutely should not happen in a particular way. That makes sense. Now, because you think something absolutely shouldn't happen in a particular way, doesn't mean it won't happen. That's the key. And that's where people get stuck. So it's it, what we're doing is moving them to preference. And in preference, you file. That's, that's the key. So that's how we do it. And it doesn't really matter. Once you learn it, you'll realise that you can do it for anything. I've got you to know? ask you, you're quite a spiritual man. You see it takes he's you glowing there. when you see yeah. him. He's glowing. His <laughs> eyes, his smile, everything. Yeah. It takes you there, doesn't it? Na- yeah. Naturally, it takes you there because once you begin to sit, look at life like that, you begin to think, well, now I'm looking at me at this position and I'm looking at myself in this position where I've improved. Who's the one that's looking? And that's when you begin to identify with something, which is your consciousness, which, you know, that could be a different story. You talk about that all night. So what is rational, emotive behaviour? So this is, again something that I, I find very strange. So I look at my, you know, my career and I look at the suffering you see with victims and, and et cetera, et cetera. And you also see criminal suffering, which is why a lot of them are, are, are committing crime. And I, I went on a, somebody, somebody in 2007 said to me, I was on a beach in Antigua. They sent me on a job to Lovely. Antigua, by the way. Antigua, uh, yeah, not bad. Near Jamaica, yeah, in the West yeah. Indies, yeah. What kind of a job was that? They had, they, had a, they had a million dollars stolen from a bank there, and me, I was a DSN, and me and a chief inspector went over there. I know about this case. Was that it, stole? You know about this case? Yeah. This story it was Anguilla. It was, was Anguilla involved. No, the ex. <laughs> what? <laughs> it was Anguilla, not Antigua. It was Anguilla. Anguilla. It's Anguilla. Was it um, a case of they'd gone in the bank or was it through electronic means? That's the point, yeah. It was an inside job. <laughs> and so when we went there, we had to go and interview all the staff and, and, and it, was, it was very interesting. But it, it, just, it just led into a whole lot of strange political intrigue. That mean, it just got deeper and deeper and deeper. It wasn't quite what, we, the, what we'd been presented with. And uh, we spoke to a guy. We didn't arrest him, but we spoke to him anyway. And he, anyway, he was suspended from the bank. So maybe he was the patsy, who knows. And uh, and then... What did, you get, then what did you get out of him? 
This is interesting. So, so he was a very interesting character. He was a, he, he, he was a, he was a bank cashier, a preacher, and a magician, right? I mean, you're always, right? and I, I'll never forget this. I'll never forget this, right? And as I say, you don't, you know, when you when you speak to people like this, you don't always fall out with them. We had quite a good rapport with him, and he came to London at some stage, and he asked to meet us, and he met me at this 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 uh, Paddington train station. And I went to go and buy him a coffee and he came with me and my colleague was there. And he said, uh, and I took my credit card out and he said, give me your credit card a sec, right? And I said, why? He said, no, give me your credit card. So I gave it to him <laughs> and he had it in his hand and he threw it down to the ground. And as he threw it down, it started spinning and he was moving. <laughs> I thought you were going to say he made it disappear. I, I, I think I'm <laughs> dreaming, but it happened, right? What? And he was moving it up and down like this. And to this day, I don't know how he did it. Wow. So if he did take that money... <laughs> Let us know in the comments if any of you know how this is done. <laughs> Easy and honestly, it was amazing. I forgot your question now. Rational, emotive Oh, yeah, behavior. yeah, yeah. So, so, so basically... So the banks, it never got the solved. The banks, nothing... The, the, it never that got bank solved. never got solved, no. The never money's got still solved. out there. And there's a few big houses built over there, and we still don't know the how they got the money for it, but they did. <laughs> so, uh, so somebody said to me, in 2007, oh, you know what? I think he was an executive coach. He said, I think you'd be really good at executive coaching, right? But I was still in the midst of my career and I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't brave enough to make the step. You with me? And I'd be too worried about what people think, etc. So, um, so one Christmas, maybe a year before I was going to leave and I was still thinking about what to do. Me and my missus were having a discussion and she was, she's got, I've got a big family. She's got a small family. And uh, and she said, oh, I can't be bothered to go to Birmingham and see all your family this year. I just want to go down to, she's got a place in, in Devon. So um, I just made the comment, it's not my fault you haven't got any family, right? So this is, this is how it happens, right? And she said, oh, I've got family. She said, oh, I've got family. And she starts trying to prove to me that she's got family looking for this long lost family member on Facebook. So she finds somebody who it is or who it may be, and she rings up a, a connecting friend and it is that person and they all meet up and then it's all great. And this woman is named Beverly and Beverly is a psychotherapist and she she actually does this particular type of, of stuff which is called rational emotive behaviour therapy. And uh, she encouraged me to go and do it and I thought, oh, what are they going to learn from this? I don't know, I'll do all this stuff in the police. I didn't kind of learn anything from it. But I did the counselling course with her and then I went on to to do the all the other courses they, that they did. And it was always this thing called rational emotive behaviour therapy, which was a theory that was that was that was the line that went through all the courses. I did hypnotherapy. I did integrate all these these other things. Ooh. Integrated and, and eye movement, that one. All of that, yeah, all yeah. of that stuff. I did. I did. Yeah, it's good all, fun. All of that stuff here. Yeah, integrated. Yeah. I've had the integrated eye movement. We yeah. have to do that. Yeah. Oh no, EMDR. I did the, you watch, down, you watch it. Yeah. Sort of. Yeah. But what? Wow. What was good about it was it, it it gave me a great range of ways to sit down with somebody, and in my way and explain what's going on, right? So I don't just do that with people who are stressed. I do that with people who, who, who have behaviours they want to change. So you know you get some people in companies who are so task-focused they don't think about the people, and you get people who are too people-focused they don't think enough about the task, and I can help them adapt because I now understand that your belief drives your behaviour. 
And when I say that, I don't mean like your religious beliefs. I mean this formula of thinking in terms of indifference, preference and demand. And that was the, the formula that I learned with other bits. And I started using that in my network, which is the police service. And I was getting people who were coming. And because you, you're the one that lives in your head, nobody else does. But nobody gives you a formula to understand it. That's simple enough. Because, you know, all the stuff you're talking about earlier, your parents, parents stuff, that's not going to help you understand what goes on in your head. But this does. And I was helping people using it. And I was getting people coming with all sorts of things. You wouldn't believe what they came with. Eating disorders, stress, PTSD, all, and they were learning this formula and, and it was really helping them overcome problems. So that's, that's the opportunity. The interesting thing was, is that that stuff has been around since the sixties. I get people who say I've been on medication for the last 10 years and I'm not there to tell them to come off it. But once you understand this, then you don't actually have the feeling anymore. What is your views on antidepressant, uh, depressant? Sorry. I think to get somebody function, if somebody comes to you and they're really struggling, then it's a good thing to do. But depression is about your thinking. It's not a disease. That means it's a way you've come to think, the same as anxiety. So when I was having my issues around anxiety, my, my stuff was, I'll do all this work when they call me out at a weekend, and I know I've done it right because that's what we always do. But the Monday morning when I had to report to the bosses about it, that's when I got stressed. You with me? But no more. I'm not playing that game anymore because I understand how it works. And once you understand how that works, then you don't get the feeling anymore. Well, that option's there for everybody if you understand how it works. That makes sense. It's not just certain people. But the way they sort of portray mental health at the moment, it's like it's that thing out there that's attacking you that you've got no control over. But mental health is about your habits of thinking and your habits can change. So how does it work? What is the formula? It's, it's very simple. It's like if, you, if you're in demand about something, remember when you arrive at that situation, it's a lottery which one you'll be in. You don't know which one you'll be in. That makes sense. So if you've got a thing about... Have you, what, tell me something you've got a thing about. <laughs> you go for it. <laughs> what I've got a thing about. Yeah. Can be any... It might be tidiness. Oh, I am OCD. Does, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Well, not... Not too bad, I don't think. I left the dishes once. Yeah, so 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 like like with OCD. OCD is about order, isn't mm-hmm. it? But your order. Yes. Right. So I, d- I don't like people cleaning my house. Your no, order. It's that my makes sense. it's my little thing. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah. So if if, if you so if you, if somebody had turned up and cleaned your house, I don't like people moving things around my house. Or somebody like rang you. Really funny about if that. Somebody rang you. Careful, <laughs> James. I'm filming at Jen's next. <laughs> <laughs> so you like you like you like all your stuff in your order. Yeah, and so, then when I can't find it, I get really panicky. Have you got brothers and sisters? Yes, uh, older sister, younger brother. So if you if you got a phone call to say your sister was at your house, she's ooh. has her face changed. Yeah, notice right. <laughs> so notice right. As soon as I said, "Is your sister at your house?" Your face changed. Well, it would which be like meant, kids normally, which meant that in that moment your beliefs had changed. Mm. And your beliefs were acting to create the image on your face. You see how it works? Yeah. So, so our belief system is actually what's interacting with any situation you approach, right? The question is, is it a belief that will work for you or is it going to create difficulty for you? You see what I'm saying? Well, we hope it doesn't. <laughs> right? That's the first thing. Now, currently, you associate, if you, if you say you're OCD, you think, well, that's the only way you can react. But that's just your habit of thinking. 
you can actually react differently once you learn how that's achieved. Are you with me? So that's what it's about. So what belief changed in your head that made your face change like that? Well, it wouldn't be my sister. It would be my nephews. My I've got eight-year-old twin nephews and they are, they'll touch anything, break yeah. anything and because of everything. Is that why you asked? Has she got siblings? Yeah, yeah, because I yeah. wanted to see, I could see that it's not the house, it's something at the house. You with me? So it's not, it's not, if it was somebody who would not affect the order of her house, if you went there perhaps and you're going to sit, you'll sit on the settee like this and not touch anything, then, then, then it'd be absolutely fine. But if it was somebody who was going to affect because she's got a rigid belief about the order in her house, right? Now, if that was converted to something more flexible, because actually you don't need to fear the order of your house. No. Now, he doesn't have OCD, clearly. I'm the robot. I've got workaholicism. They call me the robot because I just never stop working. And his voice. So, so, so (laughs) for you, you see, if, if you, if you weren't able to work, then you're going to move into emotion because you're like, "Uh, uh, uh, I've got to work. I've got to work. You see, you with me? Yeah. So, so if you're prevented from working, you move into the emotion because you've got a rigid belief, but it's under the surface that says, I've got to work. I've got to work. Do you ever have a day off? See, even when I got incarcerated, then the whole times, dimensions, and the schedule is completely upside down. But I quickly, like, like the other inmate said, I was running an office out of my cell. Yeah. I was reading, writing, doing things, educating. Yeah, it's just, I've always got to be... How many books did you read in one year? You said that in the school. 268 in 2006. Yeah. So I've always got to be, my mind's always got to be occupied doing something. Yeah. I need to do, like, I do yoga and meditation, and I know I've got to force myself to do more of that to relax, to let the pressure out the system. Yeah. Well, that, well, to be honest, people who, you sound like you're a bit red, right? Red is task focused. Yes. Right? So, so, so normally, (laughs) normally, because you're a doer, actually meditating is really difficult for you, so you've done well to learn to do it. Mm, Do you struggle meditating? I don't struggle to do it. I just struggle now to find the time to do it because I used to do it more consistently than I, I do find now. if I have a coffee, I can't do it. Oh, yeah. Because I can't you focus. Brains I'm like that. Ooh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you get affected. Can't relax. By, yeah, my wife gets affected by coffee like that bit. Like that. Because I can't, yeah. can't live without it. Yeah. So how can we fix Jen then? <laughs> <laughs> me, and James, me and James leave a mess in her house. Not yeah. something over no, no, or disrupt the order yeah. of things. How how can we? Well, you know that's <laughs> you, you see when Kitchen we knife. <laughs> 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 yeah. 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 Don't worry, you're safe, James. You. <laughs> you see the 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 driver on you doing stuff, yeah, or the driver on you wanting order. Right, it's a bit like that's the gift you bring to the world. Mm. But when you came here, they didn't want to make it easy for you, did they? No. So, so actually, you you can't always be in a situation where you're you're coherent with reality. Reality mm. won't always allow you to do something, and reality won't always give you order. So mm. when you when you, at the moment, if you have a rigid belief about order, and I always have to have it, or I always have to have something happening, yeah. then you're naturally going to get inflated when things don't happen. Yeah, and that's your growth area. Otherwise, you'd grow, you'd come here and be perfect. You know. So I had to learn boundaries about about being too nice to people. Sometimes you with me, 
and 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 actually saying no it rather than just rolling no. with them all the time yeah. you know so everybody's got something to learn it's not just about you or you but is it healthy to do a no day where you just say no to everything <laughs> yeah and it's also yeah. and it's also it's also good to push yourself into discomfort like like ask well why do i have to have the order every day does that make sense should i just leave the house a mess one day well let's do it <laughs> <laughs> is it just your house or is it everywhere it's you go stuff i'm very like are you looking around the room things. in here thinking it's a bit out of order no or? it's fine if it stinks yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's you know i so can see it but i i witnessed like all this dust here like do you yeah and i see i have not even like, noticed that until you just said it you see and it's different yeah. different yeah but i see it now but she brings stop seeing but it. you bring you something. can't stop seeing it no yeah but you bring something different to the party, you see, because I'm not saying, I'm saying that my, my observation is with or since COVID. If you look now, you see some people are more prone to want to wear masks. Some people aren't. Now, some people bring this protection thing to the party, but you can inflate it out of all reality. And I'm not making any comment on that, but that's the whole point. It's, well, what is the reality? What is the reality of that risk? You know, and, and, and some people are more prone to, to see the risks and see cleanliness, my wife, right? <laughs> than, 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 than other people would, you know. And some people are there to, to do tasks really quickly and focus on things and get things done. That's the thing I've got. I've got eye for detail. Yeah, that's, that's what you bring to the party, yeah. Yeah. Well, what that's about blue. Joe and James then with rational emotional right. behavior therapy focus? <laughs> James, what's your thing? Your work. Too much as well. My wife always complains. Does she? But is it excuse yeah. to get away from her? Yeah, that is. Yeah, <laughs> probably. Uh, yeah, no, but I know I've always done it. So yeah, uh, yeah, that's my thing. What about you, Jay? Yeah. I don't know. What do you mean by a thing? What, what kind of thing you're looking for? What are we looking for? <laughs> What's your thing? So, like, you would say your downfall is. I'm unmotivated sometimes. I find it hard to do some of my work. You're not a stoner, are you? Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> so finding motivation. Motivation. Yeah. What yeah. motivates you? Up. The fact that I have to do it, but then that almost makes me not want to do it. I'd rather just not do anything. Chill. That makes sense, yeah. You Pisces? No, Aquarius. Mm. <laughs> is it is it is it because though doing something means you've got to do it really well? Is it the standard, yeah. and 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 actually having to reach the standard all the time, then sometimes makes it a bit like here we go again. I've got to reach that standard. I don't know if I can reach it. You know. Yeah. Well, it's just that some days I've got like four hour podcasts with it, and it it will weigh my mind like oh tomorrow I've got to do that, and then I'll procrastinate because I don't want to do it. Yeah. I know it's going to take so long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I get you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, doing, it's, like, it's like doing your taxes, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, no, so exactly. Long, you're like, oh, i got to do this. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas some people love it. Do they? Some people love doing it, you see. Accountants. A blue, yeah, well, <laughs> accountants do, but some people, are, they like to see every penny come in and all that sort <gasps> of stuff. Gnashing my teeth yeah. with my calculator. I used to be with a man who was like that, who would sit there all night till 11 o'clock at night doing his paperwork. Yeah. He was very driven. Yeah. Yeah. It was minted, so yeah. that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it goes, goes hand oh, yeah. in hand, doesn't it? So one of the areas then that we haven't touched on that whereby you help people is self-harm. How do you help self-harmers? What's the mindset there? Well, most people think, 
And look, I'm not talking for every person who suffers self-harm, but I'm talking about the ones that I've dealt with. That Most people think that um, there's some sort of problem with their body or or something like that. And quite often... bulimia is a form of self-harming, isn't it? And anorexia. Yeah, but bulimia and anorexia, they, they, I call them... Um, how can I say? I call them, again, compensatory. So let, let me explain. So... Here's your reality. Here's the reality. The two aren't not consistent, right? So because they're not consistent, you're then now creating energy and discomfort. That makes sense. So for instance, you with your tidiness and you with getting things done. You're now, imagine if you're sitting in a room for a, for a week and you can't do anything. <laughs> right? Well, that... <laughs> that's, I'll be thinking about everything that's not that, being there done. There you go. That, that feeling that you get is actually creating energy. And that energy, remember, is not designed for this situation. It's designed for when you're in a fight or flight situation mm. and you're trying to get away from the lion. Mm. But your lion has become not doing anything just as your lion has become this untidiness thing. Does that make sense? So you're going to put us in a dirty, so, so, padded cell. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so now you've, got, now, now you've got two things going on. You've got the fact that this isn't happening that you want, but you've also got this energetic problem. Right. So now you have to seek comfort and people seek comfort in very in, in different ways. And sometimes when those feelings are um, are really marked about difficult things, people self-harm to get rid to not to get rid of the feeling to to kind of distract themselves from the feeling. And then that can be a habit in itself. Does it break the tension that they've manifested? Yeah, because now they're focused on here. It's like if I squeeze your arm, mm. your attention goes to where you're squeezing your arm. Because when you're in that feeling, remember, it also takes your attention. Think about it. In, in that moment, you're now, what well, all the things I haven't done. Well, in that moment before then, you wouldn't be thinking like that. That makes sense. Well, I've learned a trick, and I don't know if this is true, but you can slow your heart rate by pressing there on your hand. Is that true? I don't know about that one. Well, I don't the therapist know. told me that one. Yeah. Try it. You can slow your heart rate by pushing, putting pressure on that area. I'd need a monitor, I think, to to watch the number go up and do that. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't know whether that was a form to sort of calm your nerves in situations like that instead of obviously self-harming. What would your suggestion be? Instead of self-harming. For me, with self-harming, it's actually learning what's at the root of it. Because most of the time when we're having conversations, we're talking about what's happening, you're, what you're consciously aware of. But this is, a com this is a conversation about what is causing your problem. And what causes problems is the way you've come to think about those problems. And it's usually in, those, in particular situations that you have come to think of them in that way. Yeah. So I help them. All I do is I help them move the demand which is the which is the rigid belief about situation i have to work i have to work no you have to breathe <laughs> you see that's a difference but you can think oh. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you can think that work is as essential as breathing that's how that's the whole thing about it isn't it you priorities <laughs> it's true though, isn't it what's yeah. your job <laughs> but it, that's not really family that's wiring. And that was the whole point. I didn't learn about wiring when I first trained. I met somebody afterwards who taught me about it. And I thought, this is so relevant to everybody I'm working with. And why aren't they, why aren't they also learning it? 
to me, you know, most people I work with, they say, why didn't I learn this at school? Which is the point I was going to make about REBT is that all this stuff has been out since the 60s because in the 1920s, they started talking therapy. And when they started talking therapy, they realized that it wasn't really helping people with the things that presented most, which was depression and anxiety. So 30 odd years later, people are trying to develop quicker ways of helping them. And that's what they did. And they developed CBT and, and REBT and other things. But my my thing now, what I do with, with, with Mindsmith thinking is actually helping you understand yourself. And that's where the wiring comes in. That's a really important part of doing it. So if you if you tell me straight away that um, actually, no, you're a bit different. You're a bit different because when we when we walked in, she said she said she said oh she, she said Sean's not here. He's always late. Blah blah blah. And actually, Reds usually have a thing about time. Have you? No, because you're always late. But I know when the podcast is going to start filming uh, it, and it started filming at exactly noon, didn't it? Like yes. you said in the email. Yes. So I knew everything was already in motion to get it bang on noon. So you right. could have your cheese on toast and chew slowly. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> I could get extra work on my computer. Dog, I was getting, I was getting, scrubbing the carpets this yeah. morning. But it's and like, it's like, I knew, I know exactly how much work I could do on my computer before I left the house to get here, so it would start filming on noon. That's ridiculous. Well, whereas no, I that was makes actually, sense. Yeah, I was actually cleaning, changing the bed sheets. So you see, <laughs> he's got a thing about time. You mm. thought I was just lazy, late tardiness, but actually mm. I was. No. Utilizing my time to maximize my work. Right. So, so, so. <laughs> the robot program dominates everything. So, I had, I had <laughs> a bus. <laughs> Exterminate! <laughs> <laughs> love, a bit, love a bit, Davros. <laughs> I had a bus like that once who was, he used to, he hated being early. Right? So, he would always end up late. <laughs> but because he was trying to cram in, and use his time. It's that thing about time. Yes. So they all, Reds always have a thing about time. Do you have an alarm? I had an alarm this morning, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so my question on self-harm is then, how do you discern the role of attention-seeking versus someone who's going to go all the way? How do you discern which one is which? Depends what you mean by go all the way. You mean whether like whether self well whether self harm is actually a, a, um, a risk. Is, whether it will escalate to the point yes. that, where where they where they do something. Um, in 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 my police career, right, I did have people who who and and there there seem to be a lot of people that 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 get to that point. Uh, it, it's it's. It's frustrating now because I know that I think if they understood more about how this worked, they probably wouldn't get to that point because a lot of the stuff that you're thinking then is all about what will this mean about me if this if X doesn't happen the way I think it should have happened. That makes sense. Well, X doesn't always happen the way you think it should have happened. So, so, so anyway, so, so I'm just trying to be fair and, and, and correct. So. Most of the people that I deal with who are self-harming aren't necessarily thinking about that escalation. They're self-harming as a distraction from the, the, the emotion that they keep feeling because of the way they're thinking about that situation. Does that make sense? Yes. And once they learn 
that they have an option, an alternative way of thinking. That doesn't mean we just think positive and it will go away. That's important. It's just that actually I will be okay if I take that option, you know, like leaving, you know, you've left or whatever and you've moved on. Mm -hmm. But there's a point when you're thinking I can't leave or, yes. uh, you know, that makes sense. So you got stuck and that's that options there for, for all of us. Once you can learn how to, to, to make that happen. Yeah. Because yeah, when I was in my twenties on drug rampages and stuff like that, I'd headbutt walls and things sometimes I, re I, you know, recognise what you say. Maybe it's a sign to get out my head. But the pain and then the explosion, you, you're completely yeah. in the moment of that yeah. in case instead of thinking about other things. But do you think, you know, like now you, you know that you're, you're so, you're so um, task and target driven. Is it target driven or is it task? Both, I guess. Yeah. The tasks build up for the yeah. targets. Was we? it at the time then that you weren't actually doing that? Was that the frustration that you weren't? It was at a time when I hadn't addressed my inner demons and I was um, emotionally immature and just falling back on drugs without doing the hard work of going inside myself to yeah. understand the root causes of everything. Yeah. 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 No, it's good. It's, well, sports it, it, now is my drug. It's fitness classes and yoga and getting those brain chemicals released in a healthy way. Throwing chickens yeah. at animals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I yeah. mean, what? so what do you advocate? It seems you have this holistic approach. You're saying you're not knocking antidepressants. You're saying they're there for a purpose. Yes. But if you do address your root causes, there are circumstances where people get off the antidepressants. Absolutely. So what do you think to people who are on them long term? Because I know quite a few people who, are, you know, who use them and then overuse them. So the way the way I'm talking, yeah. the way the way I'm talking, um, people don't generally talk like that, do they? No. That makes sense. They, it's almost like you're convinced you have no option mm. and that's the way you are. Right. Like give you an example. When in my 30s, I was uh, um, I found out I had gout. Right. Oh. And and if you know what gout's like, it's the most painful thing you can have. And I'd go to work. I was all right. And what, then I'd what come, is gout? Gout. It's like. It's like uh, your your body. It's like having arthritis, but your your body. It's an assist. It attacks attention. your joints. That makes sense. Well, yeah. A joint swell. in your foot, yeah. and it swells up like that. Right. And okay. it's like your foot's trying to grow out of your foot, and yeah. you go to work fine, and you feel fine, but your foot's just come, and it's so yeah. painful. And um, and so you go to the GP, and he says you're going to have to be on on tablets for the rest of your life, and all this sort of stuff. You know, yeah. Oh, well, that's if that's a, that you know that'll help it. And I didn't realize how much my diet had to do with it, mm. right? And, and as I got older and I put on weight and then I had all these other little things that start happening when you get in your 40s and 50s, you got to learn, you, got, you can't take your fitness for granted. Um, I started to look into things and, um, and I was managing it with my diet. When I retired, I went on a juicing holiday and I learned about alkalinity and now... Funny, I don't seem to have gout anymore. I, have, I, I don't even know which foot. It's almost like I don't remember which foot I had it in. So what foods do you swear by? Not so much carbs. Mm. I've still got a sugar problem. That's my, that's my problem. I've still got a sweet tooth. Like chocolate and stuff. Yeah, yeah, cake there? and chocolate. Banana. Natural <laughs> yeah, sugar. that's better. <laughs> Natural that's better, sugar. Yeah. That's better, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, what's your question again? What, uh, what foods do you swear by now? Green. Yeah. Green veg. Green. green. Not, when I say green, I mean just more green stuff. I don't, I don't eat much meat now, if any meat at all, to be honest. And, and that seems to have 
change the way my body works and I don't seem to produce the stuff that was actually creating my problem because gout is an inflammation a lot of this stuff is autoimmune disease it's all about inflammation but Sean you're vegetarian so how was how's that improved your life since prison days um, prison well stuff. wild man <laughs> wild man his ankles filled with stuff before he died and um is that a friend of you yeah he died last year yeah he was drinking a lot of cider every day as yeah. well yeah and um one of our podcast guests the tax man was trying to give him advice you know to get healthier and stuff but um it was it was too little too late but i saw how that um alcohol in particular you know they say people only have so many decades don't they before it does your organs in because you went from multiple organ failure in the end but i was going to ask you then about this alkaline thing what what does that even mean the alkaline thing <laughs> Well, they they say that we're alkaline beings. Alkaline beings, right? But no, none of us even think about it. We're 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 look. We can. It's almost like everything's in balance, right? And mm. and 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 what you take in, if you take in too much of one thing, it has to be balanced. Yeah. And so that's how I think of my gout, and I was too acidic. Okay. Right, because I was actually producing too much uric acid, and it was creating these crystals, and what happens is the crystals get into your bloodstream and then your body attacks them thinking it's some disease or something like that. Does that make sense? So so, so the attacking of the body is the inflammation. I mean, are you allergic to any foods? No. I'm allergic to oranges. So if, I, if I have an orange, I get really bad cystitis, like bladder infection. Well, that it might be something to do with that. I don't, yeah. So does she need more alkaline to address well, that? oranges. Don't have oranges. Yeah. It's no, just oranges. Drink a lot of water. Yeah. It's yeah. Orange but juice it's, it's, as well. It's, it's thinking about this alkaline thing, you yeah. know, and the whole thing about when I went on this juicing thing, I was moaning the first day. It was me, two men and 17 women, something like that. I was moaning, oh, I'm a big guy. I should be having more food and all this mm. sort of thing. And we had four juices a day and we did all the Zumba and all that sort of stuff. All the, Zumba, all the day. Zumba. This is up in, in Turkey. <laughs> and by the fourth day, I didn't need to have a juice in the afternoon. Honestly, wow. it, it completely changed the way I think about food. So diet and exercise combined. Yeah, but but it's just it's just the way a lot of this stuff is about what you've come to believe, what mm. you've come to think you need, you know. And and if you if you're open to to changing the way you think about things, then you'll see new opportunities. So what would you go for in a restaurant? Now, I, I still go for more more green stuff really. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the point. Having, uh... That's the point. I was like, my love was clearly West Indian food, you know, and and I mean, I still I still eat that, but I eat the veggie dishes. And what I've learned is, is it kind of changes your palate a bit. Mm. You with yeah, me? mine's and, completely changed. Yeah, it's veggie. Isn't that right? And, yeah. and and actually, you actually taste food. Mm-hmm. You know, if you gave me one of those off the shelf sauces now, it would taste synthetic. You could taste all the crap and everything, can't you? <laughs> all the stuff I ate for decades. Now, if I try that. See, Sean's learned to get like a god now. Get what? <laughs> bad belly. I'll get a bad belly off it. I'll just get, get a yuck. I don't want to ingest it. No, you don't it. want to eat it. Well, 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 I used to love that. And you're like, ah, oh, this is like so yeah. synthetic. Yeah. Oh, no, that's yeah. it. You can taste it. No, yeah. Your taste buds change. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, the, to be honest, that's what we're supposed to be eating in, in, mm. in a way. And, and that's how I have better health, you know? So what? So if someone's just on like a poor diet then... What food should they introduce that will balance them out? And is it sugar they're trying to balance out? Or is it other things they're trying to balance out with the alkaline? Sugar sugar is, is acidic. 
Yeah. Right? That's where the alcohol comes in. Alcohol, I'm not saying never drink, but yeah. you kind of have to realise that you, there's a balancing act going on. Mm. And some of us seem to be better at balancing than others. You get some people, it doesn't seem to affect them. Well, it clearly affected me. Mm-hmm. And, and because I've done something about it, now I don't have the symptoms anymore. Well, mm. how many people could that help? You know, if they, if they understood that. Understanding yeah. and, your body. And exactly. And then the mm. other thing is that you get, you get habits of eating things you like, but what you like isn't necessarily good for you. But then you think, well, this is me. Like one of my colleagues, another West Indian guy, he's got gout. He couldn't, he can't stop eating because he thinks I'm West Indian. So I need to eat like this. That makes sense. It's almost like he can't, he can't grasp that actually it would improve his health. But is that from the parents finish your plate? Scenario? Oh, it's whatever it is. It's, yeah. it's just a rigid, again, it's a rigid, but when I said rigid, <laughs> it's a rigidity. The thing that brought me that was prison because I went from, Conditioned my entire life until the SWAT team came. I was about 33 years old. Three or four meals a day, breakfast, lunch, dinner, supper. You eat them all at certain times of the day and you're on the toilet quite a lot. So you go to prison <laughs> where you, we got mouldy bread and green bologna for breakfast you could barely eat and one evening meal, which was slop. So I'm going through like these things of mental torture of thinking about food day after day after day after day when you're in prison my four meals yeah where's my four meals go thinking about all this food dreaming about food dreaming about food going through this pain barrier and then when you go through the pain barrier you realize you don't even need to be eating all that food you just you just eat a minimum amount of food yeah. just to try and satisfy your hunger. Yes. And then you're not having two or three shits a day and putting all this processing on your body. of pr- pr- All that food, you just it's going in and out, in and out, in and out. And you don't, don't need it. You don't, don't need it. And to this, day, to this day, I'm not having two or three shits a day, people. I'm, 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 I'm still eating much less. There's a disclosure. Because <laughs> you're wearing your body out, aren't you? Yeah, all that yeah. processing and that that's food. What I, and I'm not... Look, I, I don't know much about fasting, but I yeah. know that's why people do it. I, yeah. I eat immediate fast, so I don't have breakfast. Never. Well, yeah. I had a banana this morning, that was mm. it. But that's only because I've got to focus. But, yeah, usually <laughs> <laughs> I don't true. have breakfast. It's true, you don't yeah. need... We're, this is the point. We're educated to think mm. three meals a day. Mm. And you think then three meals a day. that's why it's called break, uh, breakfast, breaking the fast. So, yeah, it makes sense. There's a lot of stuff we've come to learn that, that isn't true. Mm. <laughs> I think it was that's the, the Tudors that created the breakfast <laughs> meal, wasn't it? That Henry VIII, the tub. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that's just, just wait till you see how much food we eat at the pub. We're going to invite you to after this. <laughs> <laughs> Who, who's it has the two James, meals James <laughs> we've got about 10 minutes left Ian mm-hmm. um, oh, it's been absolutely yeah it's been absolutely fascinating <laughs> is there any stories that we've missed out or do you want to talk about more about what you're doing now and, and how people can get a hold of you and things like that yeah that would be good um, so this might sound controversial so I uh, I started working with one particular force uh, in in Devon and Cornwall, and um, and helping people. And um, it's funny. I get these reports that say this is what's wrong with this particular individual, but they're sort of from a different tradition, the psychodynamic tradition, so to speak. And I'll talk to them about what's happened, and and actually, that's not what the problem is. That makes sense. And by 
them understanding how they're seeing a particular situation they not own and they get the formula they not only sort that problem out but then they think to themselves why am i living my life like that's why can't i live a different way because everything is about how you what you tell yourself what you tell yourself is your story does that make sense and then you can become your story and not realize that you could be a different story and so um that's where i think the benefit is you know because there's a lot of your listeners who are thinking well this is my life and this is all i can do well is it you know like if you think uh that your loyalty has to be to a postcode you know like you know what i'm talking about and you can't live outside that postcode is the story you're telling yourself true you know and if if for a certain part of your life you'd gone and lived in brazil somewhere then you'd know you'd have a different option you know so to me it's all connected with with what is the possibility for people and and what the the optimum is for people that makes sense it's like you could have gone back to the life you had couldn't you but you didn't you gone into a different life so your advice so, is travel absolutely right so <laughs> so i think we're all here for an experience right and sometimes you can think that the the difficult things you've gone through are the lifetime the story of your life but on the other axis you've got that thing called growth time and you depend on these difficult stories for you to grow don't you and and as you grow then you begin there's more doors that open for you and that's what's happened to me because i wouldn't have thought i'd be sitting here talking to you 5 years ago 3 <laughs> months 3 years ago you with me yeah. or or talking about this stuff but th- this is what i'm saying don't don't get too fixated about the way things are now if things if you want things to be different then you just got to go ahead and make them different that's that's what i do now in minds me thinking i love it and how do you like it running your own company <laughs> <laughs> well well i i'm i'm very much like you give me a person and i'll give them time right my wife says too much time because she's more <laughs> she's more like she's more business headed she's got her own business and stuff so i've had to learn that you know managing a business is not just about doing the bits that you like <laughs> <laughs> but it's great it's a great freedom and yeah. it's great to be doing something that you you think is benefiting people and that you're also getting paid for it's really good yeah so if people want to reach out to you then through mindsmith we're going to have the link in the description box below this video like what what kind of people would it would it be appropriate to reach out to you Well I I, t- I talk about people I talk to people who have difficulty right it doesn't really matter what the difficulty is because you know difficulty is really created by the mind and and once you understand your mind then you'll find that you manage your difficulty and so um I do all sorts of stuff now I do I do a lot of exec coaching uh I I do a lot of I do sometimes do therapy stuff not as much as I used to now because I do more and I also teach groups of people more about how the mind works but in an interesting way <laughs> which we've had to develop because I got a bit bored with the theory but in an interesting way where we talk about practical things like we've talked about today fantastic yeah. so it's been absolutely fascinating so if you've enjoyed this interview please let us know in the comments below if you want to reach out to Ian his links are down there in the description box if you want to reach out to Jen or Insta and her organic cotton clothing company links are also down there in the description box huge thank you to Joe and James not only coming out to film today but sharing with us their foibles <laughs> and, and, um, most, most of all massive thanks to Ian for coming in 
such a positive vibe in the in the studio today. Such a big smile. <laughs> yeah. Group hug time. Group hug. <laughs> 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 oh, oh, well, thank you. Here at Boomer and Jen, we offer a wide range of organic or recycled clothing. We all know our planet is important. We only have this one. So it's vital that we all work together to slow down and reverse the changes to the environment. Whilst we all know that big industry are having a significant effect on pollution, here at Boomer and Jen, we believe that if we all make small changes, we can do our part. Fast fashion causes detrimental effects to the planet. Not only is nearly 20% of global wastewater produced by the fast fashion industry, but there is a considerable amount of fast fashion ending up in landfill. So let's move away from fast fashion items that are only worn once or twice and start wearing extremely comfortable, durable and environmentally friendly clothing and ethical jewellery. Boomer and Jen was founded in a quiet town in Devon in 2018. It has now gone from strength to strength as the world is becoming more aware of the current climate situation, helping our customers to buy sustainable, quality clothing. All of our products are fair trade and registered with the Global Organic Textiles Standard Association. Check us out on organic cotton clothing dot co dot uk